Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, you, Lord Christ. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. things that we do as Christians is that we introduce our friends to our friends. So that's what we're doing this morning. It's what I'm doing. This is Dr. Dan Doriani. He was a professor of mine at Covenant Theological Seminary. He still is a professor there. Also, Jordan Griesbeck, who's our RUF pastor, our college pastor at the University of Texas. He was both our professors. He taught us gospels. That was the only class that he was teaching at that time because he was also the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, which is a a church, a large church about all saints' size. And so he was doing that. And he's been a pastor of a big church, of a small church, of number of churches, as well as a professor the entire time. He's written a number of different books, including a commentary on the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, which he's about to preach from. And so it's a delight for me to be able to introduce him to you and to have him come and to minister God's word to you this morning. So I just wanted to introduce him and also for us to welcome him this morning. Thank you. Well, it truly is good to uh, be here in Austin and to minister in a church that God has raised up over the last number of years. I know that Austin's not necessarily the most Christian city in America, and therefore we're always glad when there are strong, solid, Christ-honoring churches. You uh, heard the gospel reading a few moments ago from one of the best-known, most beloved stories in the gospels, the story of Peter walking on the water. It's a little hikey took, and so let me just introduce the concept. Sorry, it's allergy season for me. The concept of hikes, because it is a hikey took, and let's just think about other hikes for a minute. So how many of you have heard of the Appalachian Trail? Yeah? 2,200 and change miles from northern Maine down to central Georgia. Well over 10,000 people hike that trail every year. Uh, Many of them... hike for a little while, but 10,000 try to do the whole thing every year. Very few make it. They brave sleet and snow and storms and mice and bad food and wet socks, and most of them drop out. 
They don't make the whole journey. Some go two days, some go two weeks, some go 800 miles and then drop out. Amazing people make it. A blind woman made it. An 85-year-old made it. A 350-pound man made it. He was 350 when he started. He was down to 299 when he finished. (laughs) But what do you call those people who don't finish? What do you call somebody who goes 500 miles and they don't finish? You call them a quitter and condemn them? Or do you call them maybe a hiker who needed a little bit of help? We have Matthew 14, a remarkable hike that the apostle Peter took, but he also faltered. He sank into the waves, and we want to know what to make of that. In a way, I want to connect it to your series on the book of Judges, which is full of people who are godly and heroic and yet full of flaws. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at Barak, who did great things but also fell short, and Gideon, who did great things but in the passage we read today, fell short badly. So what do we make of these people who are heroic and non-heroic simultaneously? Well, among other things, what we have to do is make sure to read the Bible correctly. And that means that a sort of a God-centered, Christ-centered way and not in a moralistic way, which is what often happens to this passage. Because you see, in this passage, the moralistic reading goes something like this. You need to step out of the boat and take some risks for God. But uh, please understand, when you take some risks for God, you may falter and fail, and, and then you better hope Jesus comes to rescue me. And Jesus is close to you when you try great things for God. He'll help you out if things go wrong. Now, that isn't false so much as it's half of the truth, and maybe not the most important half. It's a sort of a me and Jesus that diminishes the historical realities of the gospel events. Peter and his friends really were on a storm at sea. They really were terrified by a storm. And Jesus truly walked to them on water. And Peter made it part of the way they're true. And two, in other words, before it's a moral story or an inspiring story to risk things for God. It's a historically accurate story. It's a true story that describes the power, the compassion, the deity, and the sometimes odd timing of Jesus. Well, when we read it in a moralistic way, we also focus on Peter. And sometimes people, maybe you've heard a lesson to this effect, sometimes people praise Peter. What a great man, what a bold man who tried great things for God. And then other people blame Peter because, you know, he was a bold, audacious, fool, braggadocious. See what happens when you try too much. Now, anytime you're deciding whether Peter was good or evil, brave or a fool, you're focusing on Peter. And the story is about Peter secondarily, but it's really a story about Jesus and how he interacts with us and what he does in history. At this particular moment in history, We're heading toward the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus because the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, were getting more and more hostile to him. And the crowds, which were very impressed by his miracles, continued to follow him, but not exactly to know what was going on. And the disciples who are loyal and sticking with Jesus also are faltering and not learning as fast as they should. The immediately preceding event had Jesus feeding 5,000 people. You know the story? 
using five loaves and two fish. And actually, not 5,000 people, it says 5,000 males, which means there are also maybe 5,000 women and children, maybe 15,000 people. And the, and the crowds responded in a couple ways. In Matthew, we get them saying nothing and doing nothing as if they just ate and burped and moved on and didn't grasp what was happening, like you know, a group of very hungry teenagers who come to your house and they devour your food and they're not even quite sure what happened. They just, their stomachs don't hurt anymore and on they go. And that's the way maybe Matthew leaves it. Probably that's the way a lot of people were. But over in John, it tells us that many people were enamored with the food. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, but they didn't hear that. They just said bread. They were, you know, you know the intelligence of dogs can be detected by the question, can they follow a finger pointing or do they stare at the finger? Do you know that? It's true. Five people just nodded at me, so it's true. <laughs> the crowds were staring at the finger, at the bread. And Jesus said, no, no, look where the bread is pointing. And the people said, no, no, we like the bread. We want you to be a bread maker king. And they tried to make him king by force, John says. And so John tells it his way, Matthew his way. But in Matthew, Jesus withdraws to pray. He has to contemplate this. In fact, he prayed for at least nine hours. He sent his disciples ahead of him around sunset, it says. That'd be around six o'clock. They didn't have daylight savings time, right? It's probably springtime. And, and so he sent them around six o'clock and he came to them, the account says, during the fourth watch. The fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So at least nine hours, Jesus was praying and contemplating how things were going and where he was going and, and trying to understand the mindless enthusiasm and lack of faith. And he's praying about it. And he also sees in, a, in the distance, maybe with supernatural insight, the disciples, verse 24 says, floundering in the storm, tortured by the waves. It could be translated far from the land, about two miles away from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. And the hours passed, darkness envelops them. The storm rises. The boat is scarcely moving. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat, but if Jesus came with them in the fourth watch, that means between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And they're two miles off the shore, I've told you. How are you doing if you've gone two miles in 10 hours? Especially, Mark says, they were straining at the oars. They were working hard, and they still had only gone two miles. We might say, well, I remember they're fishermen. That's not so bad to be on a boat. But it's, you know, it's uh, four in the morning or so. And so things are getting difficult. The hour makes them tired. The, the labor makes them weary. And the intensity of the storm makes them frightened. And, and Jesus finally comes to them. He doesn't come right away. He comes in the fourth watch, 3.30, 4.35. And he comes walking on the waters. And the disciples are terrified. They think it's a ghost. Now, there's no such thing as ghosts, but people have often believed in ghosts. And in those days, a ghost was construed as a portent of impending doom. They thought they were going to die. They're terrified. And Jesus walks to them on the waters. Now, I just have to say, 
that not only do people, maybe good Christian people, moralize the story and they just look at what Peter did and I should be like Peter and not be like Peter, but there are skeptics in the world who read the Bibles and say, well, that, that could never happen. Jesus wasn't walking on water. He was walking on a sandbar. He knew where the sandbars are. They forget he was a carpenter, not a surveyor of you know, the depth of lakes. And, and they make him into a deceiver, tricking people. And that's not worthy of Jesus, nor does it seem like the kind of person Jesus is. My favorite ridiculous explanation for Jesus walking in the water is that he was walking on submerged logs. Have you ever tried to walk on submerged logs? I actually did once. I tried it once. I fell in instantaneously over and over. It would be more of a miracle to walk two miles on submerged logs than it would to be to walk on top of water. And so skeptics don't like this story. They try to explain it all away. And moralizers make it into a story about me and Jesus. What's the story actually about? It's a story about Jesus. Because he's walking to them on the water and they're terrified to think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, it's me. Anybody here ever knock on somebody's door? Somebody's door, you know them really well. And they say, who is it? And you say, it's me. That's a really short sound. And you have to know somebody well to be able to recognize who they are just by hearing, it's me. But Jesus uses that, that little short word, like, you know who I am. I'm, I'm here for you. It's me. But I have to tell you that the way they said it's me in those days was by saying, I am. Now, you may say, oh, okay, that's interesting because that's the way you said. It's me. You said, I am. I'm, I am here. But if you know the Bible well, and I know a lot of you do, you know that I am is also the name of God. Jesus at one point said, before Abraham was, I am. And God says, I am the Almighty, El Shaddai, and I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the good shepherd, and the resurrection of life. This is a claim of deity, and it fits, doesn't it? Because after all, who can master the wind and the waves? The answer to that question is, God can. God created the world, created the waves, created the storm, rides in the storm, makes use of storms, and Jesus is saying, I am God. And the disciples understand that. At the end of the story, you read it, they say, truly, you are the Son of God. It is a revelation of Jesus' deity and his power, but it's not just a revelation of his deity, it's also a revelation of his compassion his kindness, his mastery for us. But again, I remind you, he didn't come at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. after one or two hours. For some reason, he decided to wait 9, 10, 11 hours before he came to his disciples. He let them struggle for a while. He let their stomachs churn. He let their fear rise and rise. This passage Therefore, it's not just a story about me and Jesus. It's about Jesus. And the question is, who is Jesus for the world and in the world? Jesus is present. I am, he says. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, almost his last words in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. I will deliver you from trouble. But that doesn't mean that he'll deliver us from trouble exactly when we want or the way we want. Can I invite you to think about troubles a little bit? I'll start easily with hikes again. So we have Peter taking a hike in the Appalachian Trail, and I'm a hiker myself. 
And about 25 years in a row, I went to Colorado to hike with my children. And once in a while, we'd talk my wife, the mother, into going up the trails with us. And we did the big mountains, you know? We did the 14ers, they call them in Colorado. And you know, when you go up a 14er, you look at the forecast, you know when the storms come in, when the lightning strikes, and it starts, you know, it's supposed to start around 1230 or one, but sometimes the lightning doesn't listen to the weather report and it, it hits before it's supposed to. And sometimes you can be at 14,100 feet and the storm is coming and you think, I've only got 200 more feet to make it to the top. Uh, what do you think? Do you think we can make it? Do you think we can run to the top? And, and then somebody holds up their umbrella. No, they don't actually. Um, and you hope you make it because the storm's over there. It's far enough away, isn't it? Or maybe, maybe you're at a, a lake at 12,500 feet and there's a storm coming over the ridge and oh, it's a, it's an ice storm. It's, it's sleet. No, it's not sleet. It's hail and there are no trees, and we've got to run down the hill, and there's, now we're in a cloud, and now there's a fork in the road. I don't remember this fork. And your heart is just leaping as you're trying to escape the storm. Or, or, maybe you're sick. Maybe you have a pain. Maybe you have an ache. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, hmm. And you say, what do you mean, hmm? I don't like hmm. I like it's nothing. It's just a cold. Hmm. We may need to run a few tests. How many tests? 17. That's not the answer I'm looking for here. And it may take months to get the results. And, and then there's losing a job or almost losing a job or our corporation is, is talking about layoffs. How many layoffs? 5%, 10%. And we're, we're there for weeks or maybe Maybe we finish a new degree, we finish college, and we're ready for a job, and all my friends are getting a job, and I'm not getting a job. What's going on here? Or, or um, we decided to wait to get pregnant a while, and, and now we can't get pregnant. What's going on? And God doesn't deliver us from those problems exactly the way we want when we want. I, I just keep thinking, Jesus certainly could have finished praying by 10 or 11 and said, you know, four or five hours is enough and uh, I'll come to you earlier, relieve your distress. And, and for whatever reason, he chose not to because sometimes our distress draws us closer to God and draws us to see who our, who our idols are and, and where we're putting our hope in life. And so the difficulties are difficulties that we need, spiritually speaking. The disciples cried out in fear. And Mark has an interesting remark about this. He said, they cried out in fear because they didn't understand about the loaves. Now, I remember the first time I read that passage and noticed that line. I thought, they didn't understand about the loaves? I don't understand about the loaves. What on earth is Mark talking about? They were afraid because they didn't know. They weren't afraid because they didn't understand about the loaves. They were afraid because the storm was going to kill them. That's why they were afraid. But Mark says, no, they didn't understand about the loaves. And so we ponder, what does that mean? It means that they should have drawn the conclusion from the immediately preceding episode. If 15,000 people are without food, 
and you can get five loaves and two fish, and Jesus can multiply them in his hand, so it's enough for 15,000 with lots of leftovers, by the way. If Jesus can do that, then he can also calm a storm. And of course, we should understand about the loaves and the storm too. We understand how God works. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His ways are consistent, and therefore we should study his ways. He has power, and he can deliver us, and he's compassionate, but he doesn't always do it right away, and so we we should store that up and let our fears go down and calm ourselves by meditating on God's ways. You might even keep a diary, a lot of people do, or some kind of a book or record or maybe a document on your computer in which you write down the times that God delivered you slowly, not right away, and strengthened you through the events that transpired. We should ponder these things, remember what God does and how he deals with his people. So we hear that the disciples should have stayed calm even in the middle of the boat because I am with you always. That's the first half of the story. The second half of the story, Peter realizes it's Jesus and he says, if it's you, like I'm not quite sure it's you, but if it's you, command me to come to you on the waves. Command me to come to you. This is where people divide. They say Peter was full of faith and risked great things for God and we should risk great things for God. And people say Peter was a bold fool and look what happened when he tried too much and he walked to Jesus and he sank in the waves. Don't don't get too big for your britches. The only time people ever use the word britches anymore is in the line too big for your. But we know it's a bad thing to be too big for your britches and we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be vainglorious and impetuous, right? No, Peter was on to something. Peter understood that Jesus' ways are his ways. Not that he can do everything Jesus did, but you know, a disciple walks in the ways of Jesus. We do what Jesus does. We pray because Jesus prays, and we pray our Father in heaven because Jesus prayed our Father in heaven. And We proclaim the kingdom because Jesus proclaims the kingdom. And we forgive because Jesus forgave. And we are generous with other people because Jesus is generous with other people. Peter's definitely on to something. And so he begins to walk. He begins to walk in part because Jesus says, come. And so he comes. He comes. It says he got down from the boat. I keep thinking every service about trying to take a giant step and balance on that little, but it would seem impious and dangerous. But maybe imagine for a moment that I were standing here and I would step down onto the floor. I guess it's terrazzo. You would be worried that I would lose my balance. You'd be worried about the step, but imagine taking that step or maybe a higher one because it was a pretty big boat at four in the morning into a raging storm. That's that's an act of faith. And he walked all the way to Jesus. And then and then he took his eyes off Jesus and it says he saw the wind. You can't see wind. But you can see the results of the wind. Have you been on on a lake or on the ocean when the wind was so strong that it was shearing the tops off the waves? Have you seen that? That's wind. 
You don't see the wind. You see the results of the wind. Maybe he heard his own clothes snapping and cracking because the wind was whipping his garments. And he suddenly became frightened. And he began to sink. What should we say about Peter? I don't want to condemn him because the Bible doesn't. The Bible never condemns those who try to follow Jesus. Who never, you never, the Bible never condemns those who risk great things for God or try bold things. There is a right kind of boldness individually. Families, businesses, churches can and should show boldness. The problem is not boldness. The problem is that when he saw the wind, he became terrified. He panicked. He asked something like, what am I doing here? And he began to sink into the waves. But as he did, he did the right thing. He said, Lord, save me. I don't know if you know this, but there's another storm at sea story about six chapters earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it, there are similarities. Um, one of them is big storm, unexpected, threatening the boat. In the first story, you might remember, Jesus is asleep. He's so tired, he's asleep. You know that story? Remember that story? He's asleep, and the disciples <clears throat> come to him, and they say, um, you know, Jesus, we're, we're about to drown here, FYI. Just thought you'd like to know, as we all go, you know, as you plunge to your death, thought you might want to be conscious of it instead of unconscious. But then they add, save us. They're terrified, but they say, save us. Similarly here, Peter is terrified, but he has enough faith to say, I'm going to ask you, Lord, to save. That's Peter. He's, the passage says, a man of little faith. Enough faith to walk on water, enough faith to call on Jesus, but weak enough faith to become terrified, which is where a lot of us are. Enough faith, but not perfect faith. Now the question is, what do we make of all this? Because people say, well, there you are. We're all flawed. We're all sinful. We all falter. We all fail. Peter, representative of mankind, that's the point. I got to tell you, that's a point. But it's more like the presupposition or the setting, the context for the big point. Peter's failure didn't lead to catastrophe because Jesus didn't fail. And Peter took his eyes off Jesus, but Jesus didn't take his eyes off Peter. That's the point. We take our eyes off Jesus, but Jesus never takes his eyes off us. Even when we hear a crunching sound as we're playing a sport, we think that's not good. We go to the doctor and the doctor says we'll need to run some tests. We think that's not good. When you're coming down the trail and all of a sudden a cloud descends, you don't know where you are, that's not good. We're lost, but Jesus isn't. We take our eyes off Jesus, but Jesus does not take his eyes off us. And so Jesus delivered Peter. He reached out his hand. He caught him. He brought him into the boat. People waver. Jesus doesn't. Call on him for help. Lord, save me, says Peter. Now, Jesus asks them a question. Even before they get in the boat, he says, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? You have little faith, why did you doubt? And he asks the question before he puts them in the boat because he's implying, you can trust me to save you even before I save you. 
And that's a word for us too. Peter has weak faith, but he has enough faith, faith that Jesus can work with. Even a little bit of faith saves. Because you see, it's not the quality of our faith, whether we're getting a 67 or a 75 or a 98 on the faith test. It's not the quality of our faith, it's the object of our faith that saves. Our, our eyes turn toward Jesus. And, and Peter says, yes, I believe, save me, I do believe. And the disciples say, truly, you're the son of God. They're making progress. Earlier, in the earlier storm at sea, they said, who is this that controls even the wind and the waves? This time, they know the answer to the question. You're the son of God. Now, what does this say then to us? The first thing I want to say to you is, please don't read the Bible moralistically. As a series of do's and don'ts and heroes and failures, and I'll be like the heroes, and I'll avoid being like the chumps of the Bible. It's not a story about how people are doing. We're always faltering. That's, that's constant. You know the story of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac? You know that story? I, I teach that story sometimes when I teach people how to read the Bible. And I say, what do you think the point of that story is? And people typically begin by saying, well, it means we should obey God even when it's hard. And I say, that's true. That's exactly half of the truth, but it's the wrong half. Because we should obey God, no doubt about it. But the real point of the story is not we should obey God, but we can obey God because God provides. Remember? God provided the sacrifice. Today we're looking to the Lord and his sacrifice. We're approaching the day when Jesus was crucified, Good Friday, as we call it. The Lord provides. Because the Lord provides, we can enter into difficult obedience. Because Jesus masters the wind and the waves, because God is the compassionate and mighty God, we can calm ourselves in the storm. I see some babies here. I've got grandbabies that are young and, and I see them, and I have, of course, grown children and had them as babies. Little ones sometimes get worked up, you know, and they start sobbing, a certain kind of sobbing. And it takes them a while to calm down, you know. Ten minutes later, they're still going, <gasps> right? You know that kind of sobbing, the really big sobbing? It takes time to calm down. It takes adults time to calm down. But we can because we know who Jesus is. And we know who cares for us. We know he's the mighty God who loves us. And that does empower us to try great things for God. I don't really know this church, but I've been listening for the last number of hours. This church has tried some pretty bold things. Highly liturgical church in the Southwest. Putting up a building. Outreach programs. You as individuals and as Christians, one by one, and in families and in your businesses, try great things. There is nothing wrong. In fact, there's much that's good in trying to do bold things for God. But we don't do it because we're bold. We do it because we believe that God is great. We believe that Jesus never takes his eyes from us. We know that when we start well, there will be obstacles. Things will go wrong. We'll falter. We'll show that we are people of little faith. But God is great. We may take our eyes off him and falter, but he doesn't take his eyes off us. 
And that's what gives us hope and keeps us calm in life's storms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do ask that you would grant us the fullness of your blessing. We confess to you that we are men and women of little faith. We are prone to falter. Some days we do great things for you. Some days we're bold and brave and full of trust. And other days we're not. We change, Lord Jesus, you do not. We confess that you are truly the Son of God, that you are the master of the wind and the waves, that you care for us in the frightening moments of life. Invite us to fear not. Charge us to lay aside our doubts. And Lord, even when we doubt, we pray that we will have enough faith by your grace to call upon you and to receive from you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.